1: First, it was Sweden, voting in the right-wing Sweden Democrats as the largest party in the winning bloc. That was last week. Now it's Italy, choosing Giorgia Meloni's Brothers of Italy party over all of the others so that she will now become Italian Prime Minister. So is this fascism? Is it a far-right wave? Is it a national populist insurgency against distant technocrat overlords? Or is it more likely to be more of the same? One analyst who makes a special study of right-wing populism is Ralph Schoelhammer. He joins us from Vienna, where he is an economics and political science lecturer at Webster University. Hi, Ralph.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's very great to be on with you today.
1: So first of all, let's start with Italy. I want to do a bit of a tour of Europe with you if that's okay. But starting with the, the most recent news, The newspapers here in England are covering this as if essentially fascism has returned to Europe. Is that true? Uh,
2: No, no. And it's uh, I'm very glad you mentioned uh, English newspapers. It's the the same in German speaking newspapers and Austrian newspapers, uh, where I find myself, I think the commentariat in the United States is very similar. Sometimes one gets the impression that every major media outlet has a pre prepared article. And every time a slightly right of center party wins, they just take the same article and, you know, fill, fill in party name here. So it's Sweden Democrats or it is the brothers of Italy or it's the Freedom Party or it's Fidesz. But the articles are pretty much always the same. I think this is particularly interesting in the case of uh, Giorgina Meloni in Italy. Because if we look at her and she also has written a very interesting biography and there were some interesting articles about her that, that actually went a little bit into depth and talked to her personally. So they were not just talking about her, they were actually talking with her. And what one finds out, she's much more like a, a classic conservative than anything that we would put into the realm of fascism. And in many areas, she just says things that should be very familiar, in, to, interestingly enough, to be those on the political left, right? She's kind of you know that. Nah against uh, the kind of global financial exploitations he's critical of globalization generally so all things that bernie sanders for example of all people would probably also uh, sign off to so it's it's a, a very Problematic issue only because she comes at it from a nationalist perspective. Now, Is she a nationalist? Most definitely, like the the whole slogan of her is God, country, family. And this is resonating with people. It's resonating in Italy, but I think it's resonating beyond the borders of Italy, especially in times of economic hardship, because what's the one thing people tend to rely on in hard times, it's the family. So I think these things become much more important than they have been in the past.
1: So is it true that God country family was a fascist slogan popular during the time of Mussolini? And if so, is it fair to say that she is kind of signaling, you know, a deliberate echo there?
2: Yeah, I mean, that argument can be made, but I think that's a very tricky thing because it's like saying that every socialist party is somehow Marxist or communist. Of course, there are certain uh, parallels, right? The, a national conservative party, that there are some areas of overlap with, uh, with if you want to call it fascist ideology, um, that's that's hard to avoid. I, I think this is neither an indictment nor, nor an excuse. It is... Um, and particularly Italian fascism was always different from German fascism without going too much into a historical debate. So even within Italy itself, I think these things tend to be seen differently. But the idea, I think that's the important thing, the idea that the brothers of Italy have a plan now to you know, abolish democracy, as some people warn, and that this is going to be the end of free and fair elections in Italy. All of that is not true. I mean, the hallmark of fascism in the end is it's totalitarian. It's a one party state. It's, a, it's a full control of all levels of government by one party. It's nationalization either of the industries or the form of corporatism, where the government simply tells companies what they have to do. So in all these elements I don't see. So we can throw out the term fascism and say, ooh, Meloni likes or loves Italy, the fascists loved Italy or proclaimed to do so. Therefore, she's a fascist. I think this is this is such a simple way of looking at the the complexity of ideologies that we as, as commentators and journalists, we really shouldn't do this. I think it's irresponsible, misleading and plainly wrong.
1: Not a fascist, but you say a true conservative. She clearly talks a lot. You said God, family, nation. I mean, she talks a lot about Catholic ideas about she's an unashamedly religious person. Um, where she is, I suspect most kind of striking and frightening to ears of voters in places like the UK is when she talks about things like gender. She's unabashedly pro a heterosexual family. She wants to ban adoption by gay couples. She's she's not going to be marching in a gay pride march anytime soon waving a, a banner that's for sure. What's your sense of that? Like, how how extreme is she on those kind of social
2: issues? One thing that distinguishes particular Meloni from other politicians. Let's take, for example, Berlusconi, right? Since Berlusconi is also a right wing politician, in more or less. But Berlusconi always had, not without reason, an almost artificial taste to him, right? It's a, it's a flamboyant a, a TV producer who obviously is, is not disinclined to use Botox on a regular basis and the whole, you know, uh, call girl affairs and all these kind of things. So uh, He's definitely looking good
1: for an 80-plus-year-old. Well, I,
2: th- I, I could not agree more. But Meloni has something, and uh, as many people make this comparison, I allow myself to make this comparison as well. She has something that Trump has, has had as well. She's authentic. Like she, she is not. This is not a politician that is focus group. She's from Rome. She speaks with a Roman-Italian accent, I guess, in, in, in Great Britain. Correct me if I'm using the wrong term here. It's like what, what I guess a, a Cockney uh, slang or a, like language-wise would be. So she can relate to the working class because she speaks like them. She was not marinated in, uh, in, in universities for a long time of her career. So she comes from a, more of a working class background than others. And this is resonating with people. And you, you pointed out to another important element. She claims in a recent speech, which I have to admit, I find somewhat persuasive. She says that family is something real, that gender is something real, that women are something real. These things exist. They're not just something you can ascribe or decide to have. These are things that actually exist. As she said, she says, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I'm an Italian. I'm not just, you know, person one, person two, or progenitor A or progenitor B. And she claims that, that, that uh, kind of the, as we, we sometimes call the elites, want to take that away. And I think that message does resonate.
1: We've got the clip of, I I think, the speech you're referring to, so let's play that and and have a look at it.
3: Potrei farne tante altre di queste domande. A monte c'è quella che ci facciamo oggi: Perché la famiglia è un nemico? Perché la famiglia fa così paura? C'è una risposta unica per tutte queste domande: Perché ci definisce, perché è la nostra identità. Perché tutto quello che ci definisce in questo tempo è un nemico per chi vorrebbe che non avessimo più un'identità e che che fossimo solamente schiavi, consumatori perfetti. E allora è sotto attacco l'identità nazionale, è sotto attacco l'identità religiosa, è sotto attacco l'identità di genere, è sotto attacco l'identità familiare. Non devo potermi definire italiana, cristiana, donna, madre, no. Io devo essere cittadino X, genere X, genitore 1, genitore 2, devo essere un numero. Perché quando sarò solamente un numero, quando non avrò più un'identità, quando non avrò più radici, beh, allora sarò lo schiavo perfetto in balia della grande speculazione finanziaria. Il consumatore perfetto. E questa è la ragione per la quale... Questa è la ragione per la quale oggi noi facciamo tanta paura. Questa è la ragione per la quale oggi questo appuntamento fa tanta paura. Perché noi non vogliamo essere dei numeri, noi siamo qui per dire che noi non siamo dei numeri, noi difenderemo il valore della persona umana, di ogni singola persona umana, perché ognuno di noi ha un codice genetico unico e irripetibile. E questo piaccia o no, Noah del sacro. Lo difenderemo, difenderemo Dio, la patria e la famiglia che fanno tanto schifo a qualcuno. Lo faremo per difendere la nostra libertà perché noi non saremo mai... Schiavi e semplici consumatori in balia della speculazione finanziaria. Ecco la nostra missione, ecco perché oggi sono venuta qui. Scriveva Chesterton ormai più di un secolo fa. Vediamo se, lo, se ve lo trovo. Fuochi verranno attizzati per dimostrare che due più due fa quattro. Spade verranno sguainate per dimostrare che le foglie sono verdi in estate. Quel tempo è arrivato, signori. Siamo pronti. Grazie.
1: So what she's doing there is this quite interesting move, which is she's talking about identity issues, gender, religion, and so on. And she's making it into a, a kind of an almost an anti capitalist sounding movement, where it's the kind of international finance wants to reduce people to just consumers or cells in a spreadsheet. And she feels like her humanity and that collection of identities is, is more important than that. So if it's conservative, it's a it's a quite strange kind of conservatism, at least in that statement, because she doesn't, at least she doesn't talk like she's on the side of big business of financial markets. Do you think she's actually going to act like that? Or do you think she will be more conventionally conservative in office?
2: that's going to be the interesting question. I mean, one thing that uh, she speaks to in this particular clip that I find particularly convincing is there is a trend uh, in Europe and the United States, generally in the West, that on the matter of identity, we grant identity to specific groups, the ones that she mentions, right? Whether it's in the LGBTQ community or in, in you know uh, migrant background, all these kind of things. We are very strong, which is fine in recognizing the identity of those people. But at the same time, we do deny traditional identities, right? Being a Christian, being a nationalist, being a patriot, being an Italian. I think she speaks to this very well. There is a mistake, and she's not the only one that makes that mistake. That this is driven by big business, that this is driven by um, by companies. I don't think that's the case. I think that companies latch onto it, right? If all the cultural institutions, the media institutions, uh, the celebrity class, right, if they all promote a certain worldview, it's it's absolutely natural that companies then latch onto it in the hope of making more business. So this is why I think that on the long run. Uh, there is not much that she can or will do about it. I mean, what's the, what's the idea? The, the, the Italians still will want to consume, so she's not going to close down companies. She's not going to close down uh, our factories. But what I do think is going to happen, and this will be interesting to observe in Europe, I think that gradually companies will shift. I think there will be a realization. Some of them faster, others, others slower That say, wait a moment, our consumers are changing. That patriotism is all vogue again. The traditional identities seem to be more popular than we thought they would be and you will see companies uh, use that as well. All of a sudden you will have companies that used a year ago the rainbow flag will now a year from now come up with the Italian flag. So companies adapt to whatever they think is the most popular thing. Uh, The idea that they are the driving force behind it, I always found this a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, give or take I mean, there are some they are. We talked about this. Uh, and under has written about this extensively, like BlackRock and ESG. So there are some that are really pushing it. But I think that is going to be the pendulum will swing in another direction fairly soon.
1: So what's interesting there is also to watch what happens in the coming months with Maloney, because already some of the people who supported her originally, are feeling like she might be becoming a bit of a sellout, you know, just as the kind of centre-left commentariat are outraged and, and up in arms about how right-wing she seems, her kind of populist voters I maybe are already getting disappointed or maybe about to get disappointed because on some big things, you know, she was talking about being a Eurosceptic earlier in her career and she seems to have ditched that on the Ukraine issue. She's absolutely fully signed up Atlanticist, which again, is, doesn't necessarily chime with some of her more populist voters. So what's your assessment of that? Is, is she about to disappoint part of her electorate?
2: So it was this this uh, conservative patriotism that swept her into office. But that is not enough, right? It's a, it's a, which I personally also find important, but it's a sentiment, it's a feeling. She, ex- she expresses the, the matters that are really important, and I think they are. But now, as you just hit the nail on the head, now it's about to govern. So how can you translate that, let's say, ideological, emotional vision in actual politics? And Italy has massive structural problems. Italy is a historically difficult country to govern. So this is not going to be easy for her. So she might not be a sellout, but there are many structural obstacles that she has to overcome. The Italian bureaucracy, the Italian party states, the differences between Northern Italy and Southern Italy. So this, in a sense, if I would be facetious, I would say... Um, you, you, Again, I'm, I'm being cynical, please don't misunderstand me, but you probably need to be almost a, a quote unquote uh, Mussolini-like character, if you will, to really take on the many structural problems that Italy has. And what I mean by this is you need to be somebody who is not afraid potentially to lose the next elections. You need to be somebody who says, I was elected, I thank you for that. But what we have to do now will come at great pain for some, right? The Italian state, Italian bureaucracy, Italian civil service, it's, uh, it's inflexible, it's ineffective. So many of those who she needs to rule are also those whom she needs to reform. And that's a problem in every government and independently if it's a left wing or right wing thing. So this is going to be very, very, very hard for her. She can only hope, and that's what I hope that she's going to do, that she says if she really has a strong popular base that she governs via the popular base, that she really uses uh, the popularity she has within the Italian population to reform the Italian state. If she does not do that, she's just going to end like Berlusconi or Draghi before her. So, So the election victory is one thing. The contemporary popularity is one thing, you know, let her enjoy the current moment. But this has got to be very, very difficult in the years and months to come.
1: And also, she only got 21. We don't know the final results yet 20 something percent of the votes. So it's not like she has a majority among the population about one in five people, it appeared voted for her. So precisely, we mentioned there some of the internal obstacles she's going to face in sort of institutions and bureaucracy. The other one which we haven't talked about yet is the European Union. Um, there was a clip that was circulating on social media of Ursula von der Leyen, saying pretty straightforwardly that if the new Italian government steps out of line, there'll be a price to pay. Let's have a watch of that.
3: We'll see if things uh, go in a difficult direction. I've spoken about Hungary and Poland, we have tools if things go in the right direction. And people as a body that is always um, where always governments have to be accountable to play an important role.
1: Okay, so she says, if things go in a difficult direction, which it looks like they now have, we have tools that people were getting quite excited about. It sounded quite sinister, a kind of threat. What are those tools?
2: No, this is a threat. And, and there are, of course, certain tools whether it's uh, financing within the European Union, uh, then of course even the European Central Bank is not as much an independent institution as we tend as we tend to believe. So if European institutions, whether officially and publicly, or, or, you know, in a more hidden way, try to sabotage this Italian government, they could. And this is particularly true, maybe of interest to the listeners as well. This is particularly true for Italy because to a very large extent, the Italian economy over the last years was kept afloat by the European Central Bank. So, So, Italy Despite being a G7 nation and despite still having a very impressive export industry, Italy depends heavily on its, on its Euro, heavily on its European partners for its financing. So that could be a problem. The question is, of course, on the long run, uh, as von der Leyen also said in this, in this speech, is can the European Union really expect to move on? Kind of cohesively, if this is the new approach. So every time a country votes in a government that Miss van der Leyen doesn't like, you literally threaten them with uh, not sanctions, but as she calls it, uh, tools. So this is, uh, is going to become at some point an existential threat, I believe, for the European Union, particularly one last sentence on this, particularly because. German leadership especially is no longer very popular within the European Union it would be different if over the last 2 years everybody would agree that German leadership has, be, has been you know exemplary and and they lead the way and everybody wants to follow that's no longer the case so her then using such a threatening tone that can on the long run or medium run really become kind of a problem so
1: essentially we end up with a very particular kind of populism here. It's this, it's a populism that's shaped into the whole which it's allowed to occupy almost. I mean, we had examples in recent years of different types of populism, which actually had more ambitious goals, for example, Greece, when they, you know, the famous uh, Novo, when they actually tried to throw off the diktats of the European Union, that failed. And so what we're seeing in their neighbour Italy now is almost like populism in those areas which she's allowed to have some control over. So we might see quite a conventional attitude to the U- European Union, to big international foreign policy issues like Ukraine, maybe to international finance, but on things where she's allowed to make noise, which is talking about identity, gender rules about you know things like gay adoption, she can do something and probably also immigration. Is that right? I mean, we haven't spoken about that. But what should we now expect? In her stump speeches, she was talking about bringing the Navy in to put an end to sea crossings. I mean, do you think things like that
2: will happen in reality? It's gonna be interesting. It's very similar to the situation we had in 2016 in the United States. Uh, if you remember, Donald Trump's slogan was build the wall. It's very similar. The Italians can't build a wall, but they could hypothetically use the Navy. Is she going through with it? I mean, it's absolutely clear. If she does do it, the, the media backlash within Europe will be severe. So, Does she have the, the stamina and the guts? Uh, to stand by what she has announced in light of these, uh, of these headwinds that she's going to encounter. Within the Italian population, I think that would only increase her popularity because uh, migration, especially as it happens from Northern Africa, is not popular in Italy. Uh, the Italians are very aware, as are the Swedes. Uh, if, once we switch uh, and talk about a little bit about the Sweden Democrats, there is a, a severe and significant unhappiness with the migration politics of the last 20 years. But there will have to be more, so migration alone is not going to cut it. Uh, Italians are just as most other Europeans worried about uh, cost of living. So she will have to talk about that as well and do something about that as well. So there are many areas that are it could not be a more difficult political, economic and social environment in which she came to power. And that's a little bit the paradox that he also mentioned. The very conditions that brought her into power will also be the very conditions that are so difficult to deal with. And it's it's simply at this point too soon to say what's going to happen. I mean, the one thing that we can say with almost 100% certainty, is Italy is not going to turn into a fascist state. I mean, of all the problems with Italy, I would even say that's the smallest issue there is. But can Italy make the necessary steps to recover? And that's not last point on this. That's not just important for Italy itself. Italy is large enough, in the worst case, to drag down the entirety of the European Union, economically at least. So if she can push uh, the necessary reforms to make Italy strong again, that would be to the benefit of the entirety of Europe. Let's move to
1: Sweden. You mentioned it there. Clearly, this happened a week before. And in a lot of people's minds, this is proof of a trend. It means that there's some kind of populist wave sweeping across Europe. Do you think it's fair to view them in the same way? I mean, one big distinction is that the Swedish Democrats, which is the kind of closest parallel to Georges Meloni's Brothers of Italy, they were the largest party in the right bloc, which was successful. So in that sense, they're similar except in Sweden, they're kept out of government. No one will partner with them. And they're certainly not going to get a prime minister from the Swedish Democrats. Tell us about that distinction.
2: I think the comparison is fair. Um, It also shows you that the further you move up north in in Europe, the stronger the resistance uh, against right wing parties, uh, at least having them in government uh, tends to get. But you also mentioned something that I think is equally important. It has all the characteristics of a wave, uh, but there is one particular problem with the wave. I think a lot of the votes that whether it's the Sweden Democrats or whether it was the partners of Italy, a lot of these votes are protest votes. And these are very fragile, uh, you know, very capricious votes. It, it's people vote for these parties, not necessarily because they identify strongly with everything that party stands for. It is very often also because they want to vote against what they believe they stand even less for. And that, of course, does not really bind these people to your party. And this, I think, we see in Sweden. We see this in Italy. We see that in other parts of Europe as well. Maybe I have to admit, with the exception of Hungary, I think Viktor Orban really has a basis of convinced followers. So, Videsz really is a popular party. But I think the brothers of Italy and also the Sweden Democrats, I think they could be more accurately described as protest parties. And that is difficult. Right? if you are a voter, if I am a voter, if we give our voice, our vote to a party because we want to show somebody else in your face that's completely different than us saying, I vote for this party, because they really have a program, they have a vision, they have an idea that I wholeheartedly support.
1: Yeah, and we saw that in Italy. I mean, there was the five star movement that was very popular and then fell away There was the La Liga, the league that also had a big surge and then fell away. The moment they seem to get anywhere near government, quite often they they fall out. So do you think it's almost like Maloney is just the new thing? She's fresh faced, she hasn't been tried. Uh, She's a woman feels different. She's the thing of the moment, and she might not be so popular in two or three years' time. Certainly. I think that there's a 50 50 chance. uh... Cool fact a
0: crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Of her becoming uh, an Orban-like figure, or would you just describe the, another Berlusconi or another uh, five-star movement Pepe Grillo uh, figure? So it's, it's too soon to tell. There is something else, however, and I hope that also the kind of conservative right-wing parties start to realize this. And this, I would say, also speaks a little bit for the voters. Um, If you allow me a a short digression into the Czech Republic, I mean, the the most popular right-wing party in the Czech Republic is uh, led by a politician who is half Czech, half Japanese. Uh, Meloni, as you just pointed out, is a woman. So it seems that even these, you know, quasi, you know, far-right, extremist, patriarchal, old-fashioned parties, they have no problem if if their party is led by someone with a migrant background or is led by a woman. So it, it is about the issues. People do care about the issues. So this is not a question. Can they deliver? Are they willing to take the risk and say this will be painful? Um, we are running a high risk here, but we are trying to, to push through in a similar fashion, if you forgive the ex- uh, comparison again, as Orbán did it in uh, in Hungary. So it's it's despite what newspaper headlines try to tell us, it is simply too soon to tell.
1: If we sort of zoom out then, I mean, do you think it's possible to look at the whole of Europe? I mean, I don't want to exclude the UK for now, and see a bit of a pattern that it looks like around 20%, but you know, 20 to 30% of a lot of these countries are prepared to put their support behind a populist or a right populist candidate. Obviously, in France, uh, we had, I mean, I'm not sure what exact percentage um, Le Pen ended up on. I think it was was it forty? Something like that, yeah. You know, so France, we ended up with forty plus percent for Le Pen, and Zemmour had a decent showing behind her. Sweden, we've just had twenty something percent for the Swedish Democrats. It's almost like an accident of the different systems of government how it ends up playing out. But there is a sort of large vocal minority in a lot of Western European countries in favour of these kind of populist parties. And then almost as you drift eastwards towards Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, that minority starts becoming more of a convincing majority. This is obviously zooming out and trying to generalise. But do you think that's a fair way of summing it up?
2: no I think it's a perfectly f- fair way of summing it up and the, the difference I believe that we can see is that in Eastern Europe right-wing parties are not afraid uh, so to speak of themselves right they are they are unabashedly right-wing whether it's Poland whether it's the Czech Republic whether it's it's Hungary. In Europe, in Western Europe particularly, right-wing parties still have a problem because, of course, the party leadership and all these things, they have been marinated in the same social, academic environment than their left-wing counterparts. So sometimes they seem to be almost afraid of really coming out as you know, conservative or nationalist or right-wing. They're going to always try to soften their own stance. I think the willingness of people to... To vote for such parties like Fidesz in Hungary is pretty high, also in Western Europe. If they could make a credible offer, give you, to give you one example, I mean, Hungary is a country that, compared to every other country in the world, uh, spends more of its GDP than any other country on on family, on family support. So these are policy proposals I think that would be quite popular in in other countries as well. But no country really tries to go down that route, right? No country and even right-wing parties don't really dare to emulate this. If they would go out with such a program, if they, a concrete program, I think they could get much, much more than 20%. Uh, because as we said before, they are still mostly protest parties. Uh, the step to become a true populist, whether it's Italy, France, and even in Sweden, as you correctly said before, right? They get around 20%. That's not really kind of populism in the way last time I mentioned it. As as Orbán and Fidesz have it in Hungary. If you get 51 52 percent as as a single party against a, a, an entire block of every other party in your country, I mean that that, that I would say that really defines uh, populism as a as a proper as a proper term.
1: So you think the kind of key to success of these parties is family policy? Is that am I understanding you right? It feels like yes. Viktor Orbán is has all of these policies to encourage people to have kids, I think you get taken out of income tax entirely after three children or something like that. But it's very hard to see how that would be popular in a in a Western European country, isn't it just because they're more Catholic, more traditional in Eastern Europe than they are in Western Europe?
2: If they truly I mean, culturally, I guess they're more religious, if they're overall really more religious, I, I tend to have my my doubts. Um, it's a, again, it's a, it's a tricky question, but let me put it this way. Um, if I would run a populist party in Germany or, or in Western Europe, I, I guess my first step would be to go out and say, over the last 20 years, we have done everything wrong that we can do wrong, from energy policy through migration policy to identity politics. All of these things have put our country, have put Europe on a downward path, on a downward spiral. And here would be the things that my party then would do differently. And, and you're right, it would be part of the mix. Uh, but I do think that that is what people at least intuitively are feeling. And I want to be quite sincere here. I mean, the, the let's say, left wing Um, green ideology has been more devastating for Europe. We see this now, especially in the realm of energy and the realm of the economy, than anything that somebody like Orban or Meloni could ever do or have ever done in the past. So there is a lot there to tell people, here are the things that went wrong. People do have a sense of that their living conditions are getting worse, that their cultural identities are under under attack. And I think family is part of that. I think you're absolutely right. It would be less that it's more money per month for your family, But it would be a clear signal, we value you, we value your family, we value motherhood. And as I said before, I think we underestimate that this is still something very real for most people, as we saw in Great Britain after the death of the Queen, right? I mean, this I think was a clear indicator that Queen and country means still a lot to many people. And I think it is not that uh, unsimilar in other parts of Europe.
1: You touched there on energy and kind of green policies. And that seems like a quite a convenient way that we can get into Germany, which is one country that we haven't yet talked about. Because clearly, German energy policy has not been very successful in past decades, nuclear has been ruled out perhaps overly quickly, that has made them additionally vulnerable to things like this current situation with Russia. Do you think that energy might see an increase in populist support in Germany in the coming years?
2: Yes, and we already do. We already do. The the Alternative for Deutschland, the Alternative uh, for Germany, which is the name of the most right wing party in Germany, uh, they did a poll recently, 91% of the, of the Alternative for Germany uh, support, for example, nuclear energy. That's more than in any other party. Um, and they are now starting to gain in the polls again. Like a month ago, they had about 10%. Now they are at 14%. So that is more than a statistical uh, exception or a statistical anomaly. So those parties are winning again.
1: I thought they've fallen back. I'm sorry to push back here, but the last elections Germany had, the AfD fell back. They didn't advance.
2: Correct. Correct. No, no, they were on a they were on a downward track. They were at about 11% in the polls, and about 10. They had 10% at the last election. They kind of were about 11%. Uh, during uh, the last poll taken two months ago. But at the most recent poll taken last Sunday, they're at 14%. So there is a a, a small but uh, but measurable upswing detectables. And I think that this is going to increase, depending also, of course, a little bit on how the party itself is going to behave. But once again, the potential is definitely there. Uh, They have the same problem that many right-wing parties in Europe have, which is a personnel problem. It is very, very difficult for, let's say, popular individuals, whether they you know, with some kind of, of, of public recognition to publicly announce, let's say, not, not allegiance, but support for such a party. So they always then have a very, very influential extremist fringe. And that extremist fringe also tends to get most of the media attention. So you can have, let's say, 90 percent of IFD. Uh, AFD party members and party functionaries being, you know, common sense, reasonable people. And then you have a fringe of of, of really, you know, somewhat fascist approving, extreme right wing, you know, kind of uh, anti-Semitic parts as well. But those are, of course, the ones that get most of the attention, which then means that everybody who who thinks or feels like that in Germany, every anti-Semite, right, every fascist will then flock to that party because they say, oh, wait a moment. That's the party who feels like I do. And then they overwhelm the more, the more common sense, the more reasonable core. And that's always the risk that these that these parties have. So there is this structural obstacle to any right wing party in Europe. Sweden Democrats, the same thing. And as we just said, the same in, in Italy. But it's also true with the Front National or the Rassemblement, they're now called uh, National in, in France. Right? They always have the problem that their extremist fringe gets most of the attention And thereby, everybody who is under extremist fringe in the country flocks to that party. And at some point, this is going to be a problem.
1: But to go back to this energy idea, there have been protests recently in Germany, haven't there? Yes, which have been partly the right people like AFD and others. But then there has been some attendance at those protests from people from the left. Correct. Um, And there are some quite well known politicians from the left party that are now speaking quite openly about things like the Ukraine situation, but also energy policy. Tell us about that. Is there any kind of left right union in in the offing in Germany?
2: There is an overlap there, as you correctly pointed out, particularly when it comes to matters of economics, when it comes to matters of energy, there is an overlap. But the left party in Germany, they are currently at the last poll, I saw at around 6%, 7%. Uh, so they they don't really seem to recover in the polls at all. So it looks like that, you uh, The the voting population takes the right wing opposition more seriously at this point than they take the the left wing opposition. But you are correct. Uh, Maybe to use another country as a quick example, we had the same in Austria. We had uh, unions calling for demonstrations together with the right wing party. So uh, there is this this overlap. And I think this overlap is going to grow, especially with the evolution of right wing politics that we see not just in, in Europe, also in the United States. Uh, the right-wing or conservatism, for better or worse, becomes more and more a working class movement, the working class phenomenon. And we'll, we'll see how this is going to play out in the future. But also what you mentioned before at the beginning of our conversation, they are no longer this kind of big business party. They are more and more reaching out or sometimes involuntarily to what we would call you know, the lower middle class uh, or the working class. And that, of course, also means that there is naturally an overlap with a more left leaning or, or, or left wing workers representation and, and unions. Although I would not be surprised if we would see in future elections within unions, that they themselves start to turn more right wing.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of features of, of localities within Italy that are notoriously communist voting that are now voting for Giorgio Meloni. Zoom out for us then and te- tell me which country we should be looking at next. I mean, where do you think the next sort of populist moment might be found? Or do you think this is a high watermark? And we're now going to see a kind of revenge of more centrist parties?
2: No, I don't think it's a high watermark, because I believe and this is the big if for me, and I can only judge based on what I, I currently see, this might change. I think the actual European crisis is currently just building up. Um, I think the true, let's say wave of of discontent will not materialize fully before the year 2023. Um, And then the question will be which populist parties will profit from that the most, which uh, populist parties will get the right people, will create the right messaging that those can be left-wing parties or right-wing parties. Um, There will be, I think, a huge pool of voters um, who would be willing to give their vote to whoever they believe can put an end to the uncertainty And if it's not actual misery, the feared misery, particularly in economic terms. So it's a little bit too soon to say which country it is going to be. I I would always have my eyes on France, uh, simply for historical reasons. The the French are a country of of revolutions and and popular demonstrations and uprisings. We had the Yellow West in the past, right, that kind of put uh, Macron to his knees. So there is already an infrastructure for a, a, a public... Uh, resistance movement, if you want to call that. So that I think would be easy to mobilize again. Uh, we'll see what's going to happen in Eastern Europe, although I think things that they are slightly more stable, at least for the moment. Um, and Italy, of course, as we mentioned in the in the past, they tend to have you know elections on such a regular basis and, and shifting and collect, collapsing governments on such a regular basis. It is absolutely possible that Meloni um, is going to be a, a has-been in let's say six months from now. Uh, I mean, I, I wish I could give you a better answer to this, but it's it's very uncertain. There's one uncertain factor that maybe we should keep most of our eyes on, and that is Germany. Um, if current trends continue, if the deindustrialization in Germany continues, if this should really result in a heavy recession, current predictions say that the, the German economy is going to shrink by 3.5% in 2023. Uh, personally, I think since uh, a month ago, the, the forecast was 0.2%. So we moved from 02 to 3.5%. So in reality, it's gonna, probably going to be 5 to 6%. This is going to have repercussions on the labor market. Um, it currently looks, again, depends on what's happening in Ukraine. If there should be rationing in energy, if there should be California-style rolling blackouts, again, it's the worst case scenario, but it is a possible scenario. I think then the current German government it's impossible for them to survive. And if you get an, a populist uprising in Germany, they do it rarely. But when they do it, this would be, I think, of the most significant uh, nature in in Europe. So the idea, is many have, all oh, Germany, you know, they are they are heavy moving. They're an almost obnoxiously stable government. Not so sure about this. These these days are over. So so there, it's a powder keg. Many nations in Europe are currently a powder keg. We just don't know which one is going to blow up sooner. Hmm.
1: I guess I would be more sceptical than you, probably, that uh, Germany is going to go majority populist right anytime soon. It feels like there's such an allergy in that country to anything in that direction that I would say they're more likely to be the the last. But we shall see. Let me ask about the UK, because that's the final country which we haven't talked about. And actually, in this context, it's kind of remarkable, because you, you do a tour of the map of Europe. And every major country has a substantial far right or, you know, properly right wing party represented, except the UK. We had this UKIP phenomenon that has fallen away completely. uh, And we now have very mainstream conservatives who, if anything, are sort of ultra liberals. I mean, the uh, latest conservative leader is would not agree with Georgia Maloney on any of those topics that we've talked about. She is absolutely a social and economic liberal. Why is the UK so different? How did it happen that Brexit, which was interpreted across Europe as this kind of proto fascist, dangerous right wing movement has led to the UK being
2: the only country in Europe without a far right party? Uh, That's a fantastic question. Um, I have to admit the the UK in this respect is also a little bit of a miracle to me. Um, My answer, I guess would be a twofold one. Uh, one is uh, people, I assume, would like, in, the British people, I think, would like to have a right-wing party. This is why the, every time there is a change in leadership at the Conservative Party, there is the hope that finally this is going to be a true conservative, a true, you know, I, I think right-wing always has a different flavor in, in Great Britain also for historical reasons. But at least that it's going to be, a you know, a Churchillian, if you want, conservative. But every time it turns out what you just said to be more of a, you know, slightly right of left of center politician and uh, you mentioned brexit it's pretty clear to me I, I hope I'm not I'm not uh, mistaken in this ju- judgment but that uh, cultural issues and especially questions of migration have been a core reason why the vote ended as it did that why a majority voted for brexit but if we look at the actual numbers right there has been no turnaround in migration so it, it seems as if the British people can vote for something, but the effect is is negligible. And and so it's justifiable that some, of course, ask, so why did we leave the European Union in the first place? But would there be potential for a right wing party in Great Britain? I mean, you said it yourself, UKIP, it was a one a issue party that they successfully pursued to the end. But it showed uh, that there is the potential there. It's uh, the question if anybody is willing to, to pick it up.
1: It's almost like in the UK such as some countries like you might look at Denmark, in this context, the system has been more effective at absorbing the populist impulses. So we had a dedicated Brexit Party, and then the mainstream conservatives took it on and ultimately delivered it. And therefore they sort of took the issue away. Some people might say this is how democracy should work. This is the dream situation that you get these causes, and then the mainstream establishment learns from them and delivers them. You could say the same in Sweden, a lot of parties have been kind of moving towards the Swedish Democrat position on immigration. And in Denmark, as I mentioned, even the Social Democrats, which is a centre left party, have a very pretty much hard line position on immigration, and have been very successful electorally. So what's your view on that? Is that a dividing line we can make between European countries where the system absorbs it and adapts and delivers on those things versus ones where it becomes frozen out until it boils over.
2: Yes, no, I think that's, that's a a wonderful, both metaphorically and, and, uh, and factually, I think that's a wonderful uh, description. And as you just pointed out, Denmark is a great example, you can be a social democratic party, and be very successful, if you know, in which areas, You want to appeal and represent, let's say, the more conservative or right-leaning instincts of your population. This is exactly what you see. In other countries, um, those who who move a little slower, I sometimes feel what you need is a a wrecking ball. Uh, The best example there is without beating this horse into the ground. But this was Donald Trump in in, in the sense of of you need somebody who's either so narcissistically self-convinced that they really do not care about what the system is, and they, they, they go in there if you want guns blazing. And some will justifiably say he wasn't successful. But I think that only tells us half the story, because such a quote unquote crazy individual can then open the door to, to let's say, more reasonable, more, more uh, thoughtful uh, politicians who share the values of the previously mentioned wrecking ball in in the United States, it would be Ron Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis would not be where he is without Donald Trump coming before him because DeSantis realized, wait a moment, with these, you know, that kind of these, these, these culture war issues, but also the economic issues, you can win voters like across the board from, you know, women to, to Latinos, to blacks, you can win all these people with this messaging. And but that would not have been possible without uh, without Donald Trump before that, unfortunately, the UKIP movement in Great Britain or Nigel Farage uh, did not have the same effect, right, that, that the Conservative Party said, wait a moment, there are these elements like the the Swedish, uh, sorry, like the, the Danish Social Democrats that kind of we need to latch on. This is really popular. I think there's still the idea that. It's not the people who tell the, the government in which direction to go. It's the government that tells the people in which direction to go. And I think that's not gonna that's not going to fly on the long run. So, so something is going to happen sooner or later, I believe in the United Kingdom as well.
1: So your overall diagnosis, then Ralph, because we need to tie up now, is basically that far from this being the high water mark, you think populism is still on the rise, broadly in Europe. And after this difficult winter, we're about to have and into 2023, you expect populist parties to become more so. And Italy may not be the last of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we are in a, in a kind of, a, of, a, of an in between phase right now. If you take uh, Germany, for example, since we talked about it before, the, the social democrats and the conservatives as two parties, They were parties that at every election until the early 2000s, taken together, had around 60%. Both of them are now the Social Democrats are at around 16% and the Conservatives are around 24%, 25%. So the time of the the huge bloc parties, the the, the majority parties as they they existed after World War II, that time is over. The question now is who and what is going to take their place. And I think what we will see in 2023, 2024, we will have those parties who adapt. So that, that they can continue their existence and then we will have uh, what we have described as the populist parties, the new parties that will soak up those voters who are simply uh, disconcerned with uh, and unhappy with the existing political options. There might be a little time in between, which is that the group I just mentioned, those voters who might vote for the populists, I think they first will become non-voters and then they will become voters for those populist parties. Because if we look. At participation in European elections, they have been declining for at least 20 years now. So that means there's a huge reservoir of people who does not feel represented at all by the political parties. And we will see which political party, either old ones or new ones, will be smart enough to scoop up uh, that significant, we're talking about 30 to 40% of the electorate here, who will swoop them up, Kind of, who will convince them, go to the votes for me, right? go to the polls for me. And that's going to demand more than just saying, I'm against the guys in power. You will have to say, I'm against the guys in power and here is my alternative. And I think those parties will realize that will be quite successful. And we will see many new movements in the next year uh, that, that, you know, where we don't even know the names yet. So we are just at the beginning of a very, very interesting phase of politics in Europe. Ralph Scholhammer, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That was Ralph
1: Schoelhammer economics and political science lecturer at Webster University in Vienna, taking us on a little interrail tour of Europe's right-wing parties. Is he right, do you think, that there's more to come in the next year? Or will it go another way? Will it all calm down? Let us know in the comments. We always like to hear them. And thanks for tuning in, as ever. This was Unheard.